There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped at 10 and Grant's microbiter. We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon with 27 years of service. And with me tonight, I know you guys are not going to believe this. It's almost too good to be true. That handsome fellow in front of that flag is retired NYPD police officer and current defense attorney, Joe Murray. How you doing, Joe? Good to see you, Bill. Yeah, great. I'm glad you're feeling better with your uh, surgery. Yeah, it's a, well, it's a slow process, but... Uh, I'm getting there. You know, I'm, I'm a yeah. fighter. I'm, I'm losing weight. You know, I just, uh, I'm not supposed to drink any alcohol. So that alone, I'm losing weight. You know, I, yeah, cause I'm like a, a, one. a one or two glass of wine, a night guy, and that's cut out completely. So I'm, um, you know, look, dropping weight's not a bad thing. You know, it's not bad. We, you, we can all back? afford, right. We can all afford to lose a couple of pounds. Are you back doing your spinning yet? Or no, it's too much. No, no, I, I'm not even close. I'm, I'm walking with a cane right now. Oh wow! Yeah, wow. so it's uh, I'm still having a, a you know a pretty fair amount of pain. So yeah, I'm hoping no, three weeks, speed. four weeks in, yeah, I'll, I'll get back. Uh, but yeah, right now I'm uh, I'm, a, I'm in a little bit of pain. But anyway, you know, last night we had a really a spectacular show. Um, a, a fellow named Dylan Rounds, a 19 year old uh, gentleman from Utah, uh, who was a farmer, he's missing. Um, from that area and we had his mom come on last night and it's just a heartbreaking case his mom's a super super lady and the fact that she just held it together as we spoke about this case is just a credit to her she's a very very strong woman and i don't have anything new to talk about tonight with her or else i would have brought or asked her to come back on but we're going to yeah. continue to monitor that case and uh, see if there's any new developments However, there are some new things in the in the Uvalde, and not smoking gun new, but the Uvalde school shooting case. And of course, you know, this has been disturbing from minute one. And I, I never like when the press calls cops uh, cowards. I, I just, that yeah. just doesn't sit well with me. And yeah. I will tell you right now, even knowing what I know right now, there's not a single cop on that scene that was a coward. All right. right. There was a whole configuration of bad decisions of bad things that went on but there's not a single cop and, and i'd like to challenge any broadcaster from behind his safety of his desk and his, his uh television studio to call one of those cops a coward because they're not cowards exactly. and again you know joe one of the we had um uh bill bratton weighed in on this case uh ed davis from boston some of the top police minds in the country weighed in on it and almost uh, at least the top leaders said this wasn't the problem of um, lack of training or response. It was a problem of leadership. And the person making the call on the scene made the wrong call. And right. it, it's as simple as that. And I know people don't want to accept that. I, I don't think I would want to accept that either if one of these little kids was my uh, my son or my daughter, you know. I'm going to play a little bit of uh, some of the updates on this from ABC News, and we'll take a listen to this. Okay. Happened, raising questions about how law enforcement responded. The rampage continued for 77 minutes before officers killed the shooter. Using a timeline from Texas Department of Public Safety Director Stephen McCraw, mapping and additional footage from the scene, here's what we know so far. In some cases, timing is approximate. Shortly after 11 a.m. on May 24th, 18-year-old Salvador Ramos allegedly shot his 66-year-old grandmother in the face at their home. At 11.28, the gunman crashed into a ravine near Robb Elementary. A teacher outside witnessed the crash and went inside to get her phone. Ramos then allegedly exited the car and opened fire on two people outside the funeral home across the street. Neither was injured, according to McCraw. 
At 11.30, the teacher went back outside to call 911 and report the crash. But while speaking to the dispatcher, she saw a man approaching the school with a gun. She ran inside and closed the door behind her, thinking it would lock automatically, the teacher's lawyer told ABC News. That door is supposed to always be locked. She runs into a classroom right to her right. That's when she starts to hear pop, 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 just really fast. A minute later, Ramos allegedly jumped over a fence and moved towards the school while firing at the building. Meanwhile, a Uvalde school district officer who heard the call arrived at the school. That officer drove immediately to the area, sped to what he thought was the man with a gun, to the back of the school, which turned out to be a teacher and not the suspect. In doing so, he drove right by the suspect who was hunkered down behind a vehicle where he began shooting at the school. Soon after, Ramos entered the school through the same door on the building's northwest side, which was closed but unlocked, according to Texas DPS, who confirmed the account from the teacher's attorney. From there, he walked 20 to 30 feet through the school, turned right down a hallway, and entered either classroom 111 or 112, which are connected. About a minute before the gunman entered the building, an employee triggered an internal alert system. A spokesperson for Raptor Technologies, the company that makes the app, told ABC News. At 11.33, the suspect begins shooting at the room 111 or 112. It's not possible to determine from the video angle that we have at this point in time. But he shot more than 100 rounds based on the audio evidence at that time. Two minutes later, three Uvalde officers entered the school, soon followed by three more and a deputy county sheriff, while other officers surrounded the building, according to McCraw. The three initial police officers that arrived, one directly to the door, and two received raising wounds at that time from the suspect. And people began to gather outside the school. At 11.58, some students were seen exiting through the windows. Somebody jump out the window. Oh, the kids, they're getting the kids out. At 12.03, more officers entered the school and met in the hallway, bringing the total number of law enforcement in the building up to 19. While this happened, someone made an 83-second 911 call from inside room 112. The same person called back less than 10 minutes later, reporting that multiple people were dead, McCross said. At 12.16, the same caller in room 112 called back again to report that some students were still alive, according to McCraw. At that time, U.S. Border Patrol Tactical Unit was on the scene with shields and other equipment. At 12.21, the suspect fired again, was believed to be at the door. Law enforcement moved down the hallway. The 911 caller in room 112 asked for police to be sent in, making the same request a few minutes later, according to McCraw. At 12.50 p.m., 80 minutes after the teacher's first 911 call, tactical officers entered the room using keys from a janitor. They shot and killed the gunman in room 111, sources told ABC News. The incident was the worst mass shooting at an American public school in nearly a decade and has left many wondering whether officers acted appropriately. In March of this year, local law enforcement in Uvalde received training in ways to respond to a situation like this. Local law enforcement has changed its account of the events multiple times since the incident. There was a brave consolidated independent school district resource officer that approached them, engaged them. It was reported that a school district police officer confronted the suspect that was making entry. Not accurate. He walked in unobstructed initially. Three days after the shooting, McCraw said that officers waited to enter the room because they believed that the active shooter situation had ended. Obviously, based upon the information we have, there were children in that classroom that were at risk, and it was, in fact, still an active shooter situation. And for the benefit of hindsight, where I'm sitting now, of course it was not the right decision. It was a wrong decision, period. There's no, no excuse for that. Law enforcement is investigating why the school door didn't lock. The Justice Department is currently reviewing law enforcement's response.
Joe, what do you think there? Yeah, that's a great timeline. I'm, I'm glad they put that together. I know it was tough getting the details out initially, um, but what I'd like to see is where the, when they say there were 19 officers in that corridor, like where were the, the intelligence of, of, you know, and command and control, like who, who was in charge, who was directing these officers? Joe, I think that that's, there lies where the biggest mistake was made is that I believe uh, a chief named Pete Arredondo, who was the school chief, who was in charge of six officers, somehow he was in charge at this scene. And I don't understand how that is a possibility when that's a small little department. The local department is a much bigger department, probably more training in this type of thing. How did it happen that he was the one that was left in charge of this situation? It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. We had Patrick Ryder on from the Nassau County Police, who's a uh, commissioner, who's yeah. a very, very impressive guy. Sure. And we discussed this case with him. And one of the things was that, um, you know, he's he's a when I say he's a great guy, he's a great guy. He doesn't want to um, criticize any other cops, and and I understand that. And, you know, from what we do here, we more or less have to uh, critique it a bit. We're not on the police department anymore. Uh, we need to critique it. Let me put a little this this video on here. We'll give you a little bit of an idea of what was going on there. Chief Pete Arredondo has been facing nonstop criticism for how he responded to Rob Elementary on that day when 19 students and two teachers were killed. Now, for the first time, he's speaking out about that response to the Texas Tribune. He says he's proud of his actions on that day and that they likely save lives. Uvalde CISD Police Chief Pete Arredondo breaking his silence weeks after DPS officials publicly blasted the decision not to storm the classroom sooner. It was a wrong decision, period. There's no, no excuse for that. Chief Arredondo spoke to Texas Tribune reporters James Baragan and Zach Despart. He stands by his conduct that day. Arredondo defending his actions. <laughs> One of the first officers to arrive on scene, he entered the school with only his Glock pistol, no body armor, assuming he could have died and made the decision to leave both radios behind, saying, quote, it would slow him down. He was worried that uh, he wouldn't be able to have both of his hands free to use his pistol in the event he needed to shoot the gunman. Police uh, experts that we talked to were really dumbfounded by this decision. It left Arredondo unable to learn of 911 calls coming from children stuck inside the classroom with the gunman. Arredondo says he and a group of officers immediately took fire when they approached the locked classroom with bullets piercing the classroom door. Officers retreated into the hallway where Arredondo called for tactical gear, a sniper, and keys to open the locked classroom. I was praying one of them was going to open the door each time I tried a key, Arredondo told the Tribune. It took uh, the police uh, more than 40 minutes to get the right key to open the door, and that's what made the shooting last so long. At one point, the chief says he tried talking to the gunman through the walls to build a rapport, but he didn't respond. 77 minutes after officers first arrived at the school, they entered the classroom and shot the gunman dead. Tonight, Arredondo adamant he did not consider himself the incident commander on scene. He never retreated to assume any sort of command role. He never gave any orders to anyone, and he certainly never ordered any police uh, not to go in as soon as they could to confront the gunman. Arredondo's account raising more questions about the police response and if a delay in leadership contributed to more lives lost that day. Chief Arredondo is only one piece of the puzzle. We were glad to put that piece in, but there are many more to come. And we did try to speak to Chief Arredondo's attorney tonight, but we're told he's not doing any on-camera interviews. He did tell us, however, that Chief Arredondo continues to receive death threats and has since gone into hiding, but does remain committed to assisting in any ongoing investigation. Phil, you're here. Um, you know, we're getting some new information. And one of the things that I know you told me this this evening is that uh, they're, they're saying that the door to the classroom was never locked, period. Yeah. Um, first, I want to say hello to Joe. Joe, hey, haven't talked in a while. How you doing? Hope Good. all is well. Uh, Billy started out the show. I was listening to it on my way into the office here. Um, you pointed out that there were no cowards that day. Uh, shortly after uh, this incident took place, I had gone to a barbecue that weekend. And the first words out of uh, someone at the barbecue's mouth when I walked in was, oh, those cops were afraid to go in. I doubt that that was the case. 
those guys uh, were taking gunfire. There was a lot of mistakes made. Granted, I give uh, a lot of uh, credence to that. But I get what you said, Billy, there were no cowards that day. That's something that, uh, you know, you're faced with uh, certain death if you go up against that door. So they had to do it tactically. They were waiting for the keys, supposedly. But now, as you said, Bill, today, uh, there were reports that that door either malfunctioned or was unlocked at the time that the, the report that I heard was that he was unable to lock the door from the inside due to a malfunction or the door just didn't lock from the inside, whatever the case was. I would think that it was a malfunction because normally schools will have hardened doors that will lock from the inside in case a intruder does come into the building, an intruder does come into the building. So that was one of the uh, concerns. And they also said that the door that he entered in, the building, uh, you know, that school teacher took a lot of heat. The one that was outside, saw the crash, uh, ran inside to call her, uh, get her phone to call 911, came back out. There were reports initially that she left the door wide open with a chair. Then it was some type of an instrument that blocked the door. Well, not true. She pulled that door. Today is a report that that door also did not lock for some reason. It's supposed to lock when it's pulled closed. She pulled it closed. Uh, she did the right thing. She took a lot of heat, that teacher, and they're saying that that wasn't the case. So uh, there's another report that the attorney general of the state is holding back uh, details on because uh, the quote was, and it was from an unnamed source, that it's too embarrassing to uh, release the details at this time because of pending litigation and lawsuits against the state. So again, uh, it sounded you know, like- Phil, I, I was referring to the door going into the classroom. Yeah. That, you know, they made a big deal out of getting 40 minutes to get the keys. From what I'm hearing now, the door was not locked. That they could have opened it without any keys. That's exactly right. That's the report that I heard earlier today. The door was not locked. Uh, whether or not they knew that is unclear. I don't think they would have waited for keys for 40 minutes. But Phil, minutes that shows that no one tried the door. Yeah, that does that does indicate that to me too as well. And uh, again, uh, they did say if you... Uh, paid attention to that last report that as soon as they went to the door, there were shots coming through the door. Uh, I think there were uh, two deputies that were grazed in the initial stages. That was in the first few minutes. So again, they, they pulled back and I get it. Uh, you know, once you start getting fire and you want to take cover maybe, and you want to back up a little bit. And it doesn't sound like there was continuous gunfire through that whole period of time. Now we do know that there were calls from inside the classroom and this is the heartbreaking, the heart wrenching part saying that, yes, there were some students injured and killed, but there were students that were alive. And at the end of it, those students didn't make it out. So it's really heart wrenching. Um, I, I don't know, uh, you know, the, he's saying that he didn't consider himself the, uh, the incident commander at the time he was calling the shots. All right. You know what we, we know there's a, there's a million mistakes made on the scene. He's not owning up to being the boss. Joe Murray, you're an NYPD cop. You've been involved in heavy situations, gunfire, all that, that stuff. Maybe you can explain how, to the people in the chat, how time just slows down. And it's not so simple to say, oh, this guy's a coward. This guy did this wrong. This guy did that wrong. There's many, many Monday morning quarterbacks, you know. And Joe, why don't you, you want to just speak to that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important for us, you know, from our experiences to share that, you know, to, to, to just call these officers cowards is, in my opinion, it's just reckless. And and it's an uncalled for, uh, at least at this point, I don't see that. Uh, you and I know both of you guys, when you respond to a scene like that, um, even a crisis situation, even like Tompkins Square Park in 1988, we had that riot in Tompkins Square Park. The duty captain put over the radio an 85 forthwith in the entire city. Cops were coming from everywhere. It's not an organized response. It's not something, you know, where you're directed every move you make. So everyone is going there with the intelligence they're getting over the radio as to how best to address this and what area uh, to, to approach from. So I'm, I'm disappointed that this is the chief of the school police, right? That's their jurisdiction, the schools. This, this is what they were in charge with. He went and went out the radio. I understand that, his desire to move quickly, keep his hands free, and, and be able to take whatever action necessary. That's far from cowardice. 
uh, leaving his radio behind. I don't know if he could have stuck it in his pocket or somewhere. I don't know if they have the holders that we had. But certainly moving quickly was on his mind. It, it appeared to be that way. And the fact that he could have been shot didn't seem to be an issue. But once he got inside, and it was a more complex situation because they were trying to figure out, you know, I would also anticipate that going inside and hearing these shots ringing out, you know, in a school, it's not exactly clear where it's coming from. Are you hearing the the, the gunshot, the muzzle fire, or you the ricochets or, or you know, glass breaking? You know, at, when he first got there, he was moving from class to class and shooting into the windows. You're getting intelligence from the people you encounter as soon as you walk in. So I'm sure it was a very confusing situation when they were walking in. You want to move quickly, and it always happens. And, and sometimes after the incident, we talk to each other about the crossfires we were in, pointing guns at each other. It's a little chaotic when you're responding to a heavy, heavy job like that. Uh, and, and people, you know, it's, it's a misnomer that, that everything is so organized and put together. And I think it's unfair to really throw this at them until we really know what happened. You know, Joe, one of the things I just want to bring up uh, is that um, it's, I don't think it's, there's a possibility that an active shooter can turn into a hostage situation. I don't think it's the kind of situation where you could say that's what happened. And initially, that was the information that was being put out there. An active shooter is an active shooter, and you treat it as such until he's stopped. And he's either stopped by law enforcement killing him, um, the the people, the, his victims attacking him, or usually happens many times that he commits suicide. And in this well, instance, I, I, go ahead, Bill, Joe. I disagree a little bit. Just and, and hear me out on this. Ordinarily, an active shooter in a school, you're thinking right away, this this is someone who's just going to keep firing until either he's killed or he's killed everyone and ran out of ammunition. That's what you're thinking. But as you're going in there, you're using all your senses. Maybe they the, the firing stopped, and now you hear yelling, screaming. Uh, you know, I can imagine the kids must have been terrified and screaming and yelling and not hearing any more shots could lead you to believe that something happened. Either someone attacked the shooter or the shooter is taking hostages. So I don't necessarily rule that out yet. I mean, it's entirely possible in a chaotic situation as you're approaching and getting closer to that, you know, classroom 111, 112, you're hearing things going on. Naturally, you want to hear for the gunshots, but you're hearing other stuff, yelling, screaming, directions being yelled out or screamed out. Maybe they thought it was the shooter directing people, get in that classroom, move over there. So I, I'm not I'm not able to really make that leap yet. I mean, I think it is possible that it could have been a perceived to be a hostage situation. I have to agree with Joe on that, Bill. Just give me a second. I got I don't mean to interrupt, but I gotta agree with you, Joe, because if things played out the way uh, they played out in this situation. Those kids were alive for a period of time. So it wasn't con continuous shootings. Now, when we had Patrick Ryder on the police commissioner in Nassau County, he told us that on the average, these shootings take two to three minutes. Response time is three to five minutes. So most of these shootings happen in two to three minutes, meaning the person enters the school, begins shooting. He shoots until either he stopped or he runs out of bullets or commits suicide, whatever. The average is about two to three minutes. So there was a period of time where, all right, you know, bullets are coming through the door. They pulled back. Now the shooting stopped. Don't forget, too, you pointed out some really good points there, Joe, about what was going on inside the school. Outside the school, parents were coming from all different directions, as I did when there was a, a alleged actual uh, active shooting in my daughter's high school about five or six years ago. So I, I really get it. You know, we went to the scene, and by that time, everything was calmed down. But so you had all the moving parts of what was going on outside, chaos, waiting for reinforcements, waiting for equipment. The fact that he did not take his radio with him, I cannot agree with that one bit because if he's going in, he needed to communicate. We need an ambulance. We need medics. We need this. We need he, That was a mistake, not taking a radio. I cannot forgive him for that one. He wanted to move quickly. He didn't want to be weighed down. Okay, but 
the radio, stick it in your pocket. Even if you lay it down next to you, you have to have access to communication to whoever else is responding. Suppose the shooter goes running out the back door. You're not going to radio. He's coming out the back door. You know what I mean? So I can't forgive him for that. Joe, you're making great points that, uh, you know, if, if there's a shooting and a guy goes into a school and he starts shooting and then he says, wait, hold on. I want to, uh, if you come in, I'm going to kill more of them. You know, that becomes a hostage situation. I don't think that happened to me. It sounded like he wasn't communicating, but the shooting did stop. They were trying to make contact with him. So again, him perceiving it as a, a hostage situation, I could, I could see that. Let me play a little bit of this. This is about the changing uh, information we got. Left 21 dead and 17 wounded. In the days following, authorities gave differing accounts of what happened, raising questions about how law enforcement responded. The rampage continued for 77 minutes before officers killed the shooter. Using a timeline from Texas Department of Public Safety Director Stephen McCraw, mapping and additional footage from the scene, here's what we know so far. In some cases, timing is approximate. Shortly after 11 a.m. on May 24th. I'm not going to go through that whole timeline, but we just know that many things changed since it first happened. The information yeah. changed. Part of the problem, I would also say, is that in the very early stages of this, the police didn't do a good job of getting the information out. They put out a lot of incorrect information, and that le leads the public to believe that you're not competent at your job. They initially said that a uh, school safety officer had confronted the gunman. There was not even a, a school safety officer working that day. So that made the public believe that things weren't, you know, they weren't doing a good job in getting the information out there. There was information that, the teacher opened the door and left it propped open. That never happened. Right. And apparently she closed the door and it's supposed to automatically lock it, never locked. Um, officers did apparently exchange gunfire with the shooter. I don't know if that was in fact reported, but there was there were some heroes in this incident as well as people that may be considered not acting properly. But there were some heroes in this incident. Absolutely. Yeah, Go ahead, Joe. It, it's definitely a, a difficult situation. I agree with you 100%, Philly. The radio is your lifeline. You get Absolutely. description, direction of flight. You know, there's just so much. And I, I don't understand him. I don't know. I mean, we had those. You remember the clip? You turn it upside down. You put it in. Like, we, we had a way to lock our radio in so it was with us all the time. And you turn it up and you're listening, you know, but. I don't know. Maybe he was he was concerned for the gunman to hear the radio. He was trying to approach in a more stealth way. I, I don't know, but I think it was a mistake not having the radio. Going to your point, Bill, about you know the confusion and the bad communication of the timeline and events, it's hard to to really put that on them because yes, you're 100 percent correct, but in our situation. Were this the NYPD, we are the force that responds there. And our communications are, are unified. We had a small six-member department there. We had another agency come in. Homeland Security came in. Another agency. So with that many different departments and, and issues going on, I can see how there would be, you know, there's no unified chain of command between all the officers there, it, 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 it is chaotic uh, to begin with. And the desperation to get information out right away led to mistakes. And uh, it, sadly, you, you really have to be careful with that because, you know, when, when people find that you've misstated something, they're less likely to trust what you say the second time or the third time. And it, and it really does a lot of damage. And all of our critics are out there saying we're doing this on purpose to try to cover up. That's the first thing that will be yelled, uh, you know, and called out. So it's so critically important to make sure you get that information and uh, and do it in a timely and accurate way. 
When you report inaccurate facts, Joe, that leads to public distrust, 100%. Yeah. I want to make a comment about the radio. Now, that radio, to me, I always had in my left hand, my non-gun hand, that if I ever had a retreat for my firearm, like you said, it was the lifeline. And it also served as a weapon. Now, I worked in, in a suit and tie a lot. You know, a lot of my years, I was an investigator. I was in the squad. So I wasn't carrying a nightstick. I didn't have readily available tools to fight with. So that radio was that for me. And sure. I just can't see that. Uh, one other point I want to make too, you know, uh, to fire a barrage of bullets inside the door of that classroom in the early stages could have been construed as very, very dangerous because there were children inside. Now, had they, I don't think that they had communication with that 911 caller, which that was probably one of the mistakes that were made. Maybe the information wasn't being transported or direction given back. You know, uh, if they're in the back of the room, let them stay towards the back, you know, in case they make, uh, they breach the door and make an entry. I don't know what transpired there, but that was a very, very important asset. If you have communication inside a barricaded gunman's uh, uh, lair, you know, he's inside the classroom and you have communication with someone, that was an extremely important asset at that moment. That's an important tool. It doesn't seem like it was utilized. And I don't think that the communication was uh, tr you know, uh, transmitted to the people that were outside the classroom or on the scene or whoever was making the decisions. I could be wrong on that, but it doesn't sound like it. Yeah. You know, going back to police commissioner Patrick Ryder from Nassau County, I had brought up the aspect that in, in the NYPD, the person in charge, and he reminded me of this, could be a police officer. It's yeah. the highest ranking patrol services bureau officer on the scene at that time. Yeah. So if the highest ranking guy is a police officer, guess what? He's in charge until he's relieved by the next highest ranking from patrol services. Yeah, uniform. So, a police officer could have made the decision to go in. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's one of the things I think is good in the chain of command with the NYPD is that there's no doubt of who is in charge. And just yeah. that little scenario we mentioned right there is that it could be as lower rank than that, and not to put the, down the rank of police officer. It's a admirable rank. It's where everyone starts out. But an experienced 20, 25-year police officer has all that knowledge and all that experience at his disposal. So that person could be the one making that decision. But I still think, Bill, when you're responding to a shooting incident like this, you're not looking for someone to give you orders. You're reacting. You're yes. taking the building. You're looking at where resources are going. You know, I, I, I hated it. A lot of times I would see cops one behind the other running after each other. You know, you know what? You guys go that way. I'm going to go this way. You know, so but police officers do that. That You know, they're not just robots and they'll react to certain things. And you don't need a boss to say, hey, all right, there's enough guys approaching from this side. How about send some of the other side? You kind of figure it out. So I'm not that. You know, 77 minutes is a very long time. At some point, there should have been some clear direction given about tactically how to address this. Uh, but initially, the officers arriving on the scene, they're not looking for anyone to give them orders. They're responding. They're looking to identify the shooter, how many shooters, uh, you know, what the situation is. And you're 100% right, Philly. Having someone on the inside calling 911 twice, calling twice, why that information was not, you know, uh, given and conveyed to the officers who were responding, or at least somebody to have contact with them, you know, and, and speak to them directly. Uh, uh, Linda Uribe in the chat asks the question, a cop's wife, so why was he the chief? What, what good was he? Well, you know, we questioned as uh, why was the chief of a six-man department in charge at a major incident like this? We questioned why that was done, and for sure, uh, I want to put uh, I want to play a little bit of Bill Bratton, who critiques uh, this incident. No, what's your assessment here? Well, a lot of what we're dealing with, really, as you know, is speculation at this stage because law enforcement in Texas has been an embarrassment in terms of the information they've been providing. Uh, the misinformation that's been provided. I teach this in terms of communications in times of crises. And you always start off with the information as preliminary, subject to change. The information they've been putting out now two, three days after the event 
has been an embarrassment because there was so much misinformation. So we really don't know at this stage what happened in those first 12 minutes, that first hour. And what we do know is that there seems to have been a violation of the basic tenet of active shooters, which is that you move to the shooter. No matter what, you move to the shooter to save lives. And officers around the country since Columbine now for 30 years have trained to do that. We're going to need to find out in the days and weeks ahead that this department trained for it. Did they, in fact, do it? I'm now reading news stories about some individual officers who effectively did do that in that school. What's also missing here, really, even four days into this event, is there's no schematic about this school. This is not one building. It is multiple buildings, multiple classrooms in multiple buildings. So they should be able to, at this stage to basically explain what does this building look like? Where were officers? Where was the shooter? The confusion. Everybody was killed in one classroom. We now find there may be as many as four classrooms this individual was roaming through. No, there's just so many unanswered questions, but at this stage of the game, they should be doing a much better job than they have been doing to try and explain what they do know. And it's, it's a mess. It's an absolute mess. Joe, comment? Yeah, he's, right. he's right about that. It, 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 it's an absolute mess that two or three days after and you're still giving out misinformation, there's, there's no excuse for that. Uh, but certainly uh, immediately and the day of and uh, immediately thereafter, it's understandable, but he's absolutely right. Preliminarily, this is what we know. That should have been what was said instead of, you know, just giving out facts. But this is such a horrible situation. I, I, I can't reiterate the officers responding. He said everyone goes right to the shooter, active shooter. I'm sure that was happening. But look at that labyrinth of, of the classrooms. You know, there were buildings next to each other. How do you know where the shots are coming from when you're in that kind of environment, you know? And you have to also remember there's nothing about a gunshot that tells you, oh, that's a cop shooting, oh, that's a bad guy shooting. You don't know who's firing the shots. You don't know how many shooters there are. There's a lot of, you know, information you don't have, but you're acting instinctively going towards the shooter looking for the bad guy. And then on that point, what does the bad guy look like? Unless you've gotten that information over the radio, you don't yet know. Everyone is the bad guy at that point until you verify they're not the bad guy. Uh, John Riesinger in the chat. Yes, they're trying to cover it up from the governor on down. Those kids deserve the truth. Please don't let their lives be in vain. John, what we're trying to do here is to dissect what happened and to, to get to shine a spotlight on it and to get the truth out there. I and Phil and, and everyone that's been on this show, we've been highly critical of it. And we brought in, you know, Patrick Ryder, one of the top experts in the nation on this. And he has a brilliant, brilliant uh, active shooter program out in Nassau County that should probably be the model for the whole nation. And rather than all these politicians going around talking about, uh, you know, gun control and all this other stuff, they should bring a guy like him to speak in front of Congress and talk about, his active shooter program for Nassau County that can be maybe utilized for the entire nation. Hey, Joe, there was an app that they developed and he had all the teachers in the schools in Nassau County downloaded into their phone. When they hit that app, they activate it. It tells the exact location of where they are in the school. And he had all the school rooms numbered from outside. So now when the police are responding if they go to a window and they see number 12 and that's the room that they're supposed to be going into, they know that that's the room where the shooting is taking place. So that in and of itself should be a national policy across the nation. Every school in the country, every teacher, we all have cell phones now, should have that app downloaded into their phone. And it, it's very, very accurate because of the uh, technology of cell phones today. So again, now you have a person activating, they can text or they can talk to give information on where this active shooter is or whatever the threat is. So that right there in and of itself is something that should be instituted across the, the nation. That probably, uh, if that was in this school in Uvalde, would have saved lives. Let me play a little bit of Patrick Ryder. lives. Slow the shooter down, get the cops there faster, and know the environment you're about to go into and where you're going to go. That's how you save lives. If you start whipping out plans and cameras, even the, you know, the cameras, they say, oh, you should have uh, access to our cameras. 
And by the time I turn it on, if the internet connects and you didn't change the password on me because with that many buildings, that happens every day, right? I'm not going to be able to keep up with that. You heard Bill Bratton say, go, go to the shooter, take the shooter out, and then we'll deal with the rest. So slow him down, control access, locking doors, cameras, ballards in front of the building if it's a car, all of those things in place, knowing where to hide, practice and drill like you do in the building. You know, now they're going around and they're selling this stuff where smoke's going to come out of the ceiling and phase out. That's a bunch of crap. All of that is crap. It's Commissioner, what what is that called again? EVAP system, you said? Uh, the, the, the smoke out of the ceiling? No, no, no. The thing that you said that all the Nassau County. It's a rave app. Rave app. Yep. And it's just like any app on the phone. And we when we visit the school, we pick the, the teachers who are going to have it. Okay. By where they work in the building. How is this not throughout the country? This this is something you, you made the greatest point that most shootings are going to take place in two to three minutes, 75%. And you have a system that. Three, might three to five, Phil. You weren't listening. No, no, he, he said the shooting's two to three minutes. That's the response correct. is three to five. So we, we want to speed up the response. And that right there would would bypass 911. And the officer sees that. He's dropping what he's doing. He's getting to that school. And that might save lives. I mean, that's something that Democrats and Republicans should get together on. That could be implemented in days. I mean, that, that should be a national mandatory thing in every school. Now, Real quick about the schools. Now, the, the schools in my area, now my wife works in a school. I'm not going to say where, but she works in a middle school and they have the doors, like you said, uh, Commissioner, they have a door that's uh, a person will, will ring the buzzer. They'll see them on camera. They'll ask, they'll speak to them first. They come through one door and then they get buzzed into a second door. So that's something I think every school should have as well. Most of them do. My daughter's high school has it. The school with my, my wife works in middle school has it. But but this other thing I think is, is probably something even better because it's going to get the cops there quicker. So that's Nassau County uh, Commissioner Patrick Ryder. Brilliant program, a program that should be brought uh, – nationally to every school in the country and uh you know we we recommend that he go speak in front of congress rather than these politicians going around trying to just develop more and more hatred like they do all the time so that they can remain in power that's all that's my take on politicians folks this is police off the cuff real crime stories if you're not subscribed to us go on our youtube hit that subscribe button ring that bell give us a thumbs up uh, if you want to support us we have a patreon with three different levels and if you want to become part of our YouTube family, you can see the folks with the green font in the chat. They're part of our YouTube family where we have five different levels. I just want to mention something about, I know there's a lot of hatred toward the cops in Texas. There's a lot of, uh, and uh, look, there's a lot of things went wrong there. I can't defend the things that happened. I don't think anyone can. Uh, some of the top police experts in the nation were highly critical. But now we got to pick up the pieces and move forward. And that's very much important. And Joe, I wanted to mention like some truths are coming out. Look, three weeks, four weeks after this incident happened, it's going to move to a phase of undoubtedly a civil case. And of course, no one wants to talk about that, but there's going to be gigantic, gigantic lawsuits. I would imagine that after the smoke clears in this, they will probably knock this school down. I can't see them going back into that school. They did that at Sandy Hook, schools that have had these horrendous act shooter cases. Many times they knocked the school down. Joe, uh, if you can just talk about a little bit about, you know, getting the truth out because all of this is going to wind up at some point, two or three years down the road in, in a civil case. Yeah, it's so important to get the facts and get the truth out. And, you know, you know from our job, you know, the GO15 process and interviewing everyone, uh, it's all going to happen. It's all happening now where, you know, just methodically, whatever investigative body they have, you know, doing this investigation, I think the feds are coming in now uh, to oversee that internal investigation it's going to be very methodical, you know, start, get the roll call. Who was there? Who was working? Who responded first? Who got there? Whatever technology they have, they may even have GPS tracking, you know, um, of their cars or radios. So I think it, it's going to come out. It's going to be done. Uh, you know, I've heard the federal government now is overseeing this investigation, but it'll be very methodical. They'll go through 
each person, interview them. They'll compare, you know, the, the information they receive, see if it corroborates, and we will find the answers. Yeah, unbelievable. You know, Phil, I just want to go quickly to uh, since he's here, he, you know, he's going to track the, that whether we do this or not. You know, <laughs> live in, in the fresh, we have uh, Joe Murray tonight. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of the fence. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you could email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. Highly recommended as a criminal defense attorney. Joe Murray, live and in the flesh. You, you know, folks, these cases, um, of course, uh, they happen too often right now, of course, these active shooter cases. But I think politically we're losing faces to or, or, or what is an active shooter. There was a, shoot, a shooting last night in Harlem in which nine people were shot. One was killed. That did, doesn't fit the definition of an active shooter case. And we'll find out more as the investigation goes forward. That may have been a dispute. It may have been, there may have been several guns. We don't know yet. It's too early, too early on in the investigation. But we need to, the definition of what an active shooter is and how we respond to it and how we investigate it investigated has to remain uh you know the way it was investigated from the very beginning and an active shooter is defined as a certain set of um uh set of uh, norms with it you know someone that goes in and has no other reason but to shoot people and doesn't stop until he's stopped that's an active shooter Absolutely, Billy. I think the uh, incident in Harlem doesn't sound like it was an active shooter situation. I believe it was some kind of an event and there was uh, rival gangs or whatever it was. There was some kind of a dispute that led to that shooting last night. But, you know, uh, it, the federal standard for mass shooting is, I believe, three or four people injured in a shooting is considered a mass shooting. But I think you made the real point, Billy. Uh, that's the pinpoint is when a person goes into a location, whether it be a school, a hospital, a post office, whatever it is, with the intent on uh, causing mayhem and killing people, and they just go on this rampage until they either commit suicide or are stopped. And to me, that's what I consider a mass shooting. Uh, when you have these street gangs getting involved in uh, rival gun battles, uh, that is more of a gang problem as opposed to- Well, Phil, to you know, that's suicide. why I'm saying it, because I don't want the politicians to steal- this yeah. definition for their own purposes, yes, you know, exactly. which I don't know if you heard, but in New York, they just keep passing new gun legislation that has nothing to do with stopping gun uh, gangbangers. They just stopped. They just added to the law that you're not allowed to own body armor. They yeah. just micro, micro encrypting bullets. I mean, what what is that going to do? Like, like the bad guys going to worry about what's written on the bullets when they're firing them? They're pulling out guns in front of police stations and firing shots like it's uh, nothing, like the Wild West. So these laws are targeted towards law-abiding citizen, and and we need to target the criminals. That's the problem in this country. The politicians don't want to target the criminals. We go through it all the time: bail reform, no stop, question and frisk, on and on we go, and then uh, decarceration. We could go on all night. We know the story. It's been going on for a few years. We see yeah. the mayhem in the streets. The criminal element and, and the crime statistics are just skyrocketing and they want to put micro-encrypting on bullets. How is that going to stop anything? That's not going to stop the bullets from being loaded into a gun and fired. That's you know, Phil, it's just like you know that whole expression let's make a smoke screen. Maybe they yeah. won't see through it. Yeah. Let's act like we're doing something by passing laws that have no effect on what the real problem is. And I know, Joe, you follow this greatly because you you ran for Queens District Attorney. And this yeah. stuff is sickening. And and it's the, these people up in Albany, they're worse and worse and worse. They, they, they don't do their job. Yeah, okay. it really bothers me. Uh, you know, I, I, I hate politicians. I ran for office for the first time in 2019 and I did it as a former police officer, public servant, seeing this madness going on, closing Rikers Island, the decarceration, bail reform, discovery reform, uh, the, the uh, 
diaphragm law, eliminating qualified immunity. It was one thing after another with the common goal and design of suppressing police activity, proactive policing, suppressing prosecutions, and eliminating people going to jail, decarceration. This is their whole goal. So when I saw all this happening and, and turning the guns on cops, attacking cops, I said, I, I can't. I can't sit back. I have to get involved and I had to do this. But you're absolutely right. I mean, these politicians, it, it sickens me that public servants, they are public servants. They should be out there with their number one goal to protect us. And they should be focusing on that. It kills me to hear that a school, and we don't yet know if this door was unlocked and routinely unlocked, and maybe that's why he went to that door. Uh, it wasn't addressed. How do you do that? How do you leave kids in an unlocked environment, allowing someone to walk off the street and and do what they will? You know, it's so. I, and they're, they're, they don't, they don't want to address that. The hardening of schools is so important. We've done it everywhere else, uh, in banks and, and sensitive locations. Joe, you know, Joe, you just used a security term. I just want to make sure all our guests know hardening a target. Just explain that to everyone. Yeah, well, I mean, just I, I love I watched that show with Commissioner Ryder. I got to tell you, I love listening to this guy. I can listen right. to him all day long because he's so common sense and, and, you know, matter of fact, explaining everything very logically. But just to explain to the audience, hardening a target means you're dealing with to prevent people who are shouldn't be in there. So access control is number one. What barriers do you have? He mentioned about, you know, putting up some obstructions to prevent cars. You know, we see that outside of, you know, sensitive locations where they have these hard uh, planters that are out there. You know, you can't uh, ram through there. Okay, fencing. And then access control. Is there somewhere, uh, someone there or some way that you have to get access? We can control who comes in. Then you have other issues, like when you think about a bank, the plexiglass, you know, the, the, the bulletproof glass. And, you know, you harden it and making it hard to penetrate by bad doers, you know, people there to do harm. And, and it it's an assessment that should be done in all of these schools to see if there are other ways. What did Patrick Ryder say? He said two to three minutes, uh, these events take place and three to five, you know, for uh, the response. The response. Yeah. So what is our goal to slow down their access, slow down their ability to do harm and quicken the response. So that all should be incorporated. I love what they're doing out there. And again, I'd, I'd love to listen to Patrick Ryder. Yeah, no, I, I happen to agree with you. I mean, it, this is a, a problem that is solved partly through technology, but also the law. The law has to address it. And, you know, these these ridiculous laws that this Governor Hochul uh, is making, you know, let, let's stop active shooters. Let's ban body armor, you know. Yeah, that's, that's the most ridiculous thing. I, 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 I remember... You know, during the summer of love with all the riots going on in 2020, you know, my ex lives alone in a house in Queens. And there was a very delayed response during these riots, you know, to 911 calls. You know, it's just, you know, the rundown gets jammed up and backlogged. Her house, she has like, I don't want to out her, but she's got like the sliding glass. It's, it's something that could be penetrated. And if she calls 911, what is her response? So someone like her should be able to purchase body armor. She has a shotgun. She's able to defend herself, at least delay the harm that could come to her, as in Patrick Ryder's words, so that the response can catch up with them. But to say you can't own body armor, I mean, that's a defensive a uh, piece of equipment to protect you. It's not That's terrible. offensive. You know, Joe, when they're, when they're asked by their constituents, what have you guys done about gun control? We passed 10 laws. You know, that's all they want to say. Right. We passed right. 10 I can't new stand things, that. You, know? I, I, you know, they don't want to enforce the laws we have, and they're making more laws. You're not going to legislate our way out of this issue. It's just not going to come through legislation. It's going to come through being more involved and, like we said, doing this assessment, implementing certain things like that 
that Vadar or whatever he calls it. Ravak. Ravak. No, why can't the politicians, this is going on three, four weeks, this shooting, right? It's three, four weeks now We're uh, in, in the past. Why can't they get together on that? That's something, it's an app. You download it onto a cell phone. You make a, a coordinated plan with the local police department. He brought up so many other good things that the offices that are going to patrol a sector and have a school, they should go into the school several times during their tour or several times a week and go in and walk through and know where the classroom on, know where the entrances are, know where he pointed out so many good things. Why can't they do the simple things? Forget the gun laws and all of that. Get this RAVAP thing tomorrow. That should be done tomorrow exactly. where you have communication from a person that is hitting that button and is saying there's an active shooter or whatever the threat is and you can you can speed up response time. If a, if a cop is taking a report for a pettit larceny in a, in a in a supermarket, let's say, and he gets that RAVAP notice and he's a block from the school, he's there. You know, the, the response time, you know, if it's just a call, a 911, and, you know, he's writing the report and maybe doesn't pay attention, but that thing is going to give an alert to his phone. So that's something that really, that should be, come on, guys, Democrat and Republican, get together on that at least. That's a no-brainer. Okie dokie seven, what average person needs body armor? No, no, I no, call, no, no, no. I call BS. Well, you know something? When, as they take away and chip away at all your rights, that's one other thing that is why not? Why shouldn't an honest citizen be able to own body armor for his own protection? Yeah. Why shouldn't he? Hey, small businesses, they carry cash. They they, they got to go to the bank. They shouldn't be allowed to carry a bulletproof vest in case somebody tries to rob them. Maybe they're not armed, so they want to have a bulletproof vest. Or a courier that carries jewelry or uh, restaurant uh, bounces or bars. Or I mean, th there's all these different incidents that go on in, in Manhattan. Every, every day there's uh, people getting their watches ripped off their arm while they're having dinner in Manhattan. So... Uh, and shot. So why why not have uh, uh, the the opportunity to own a bulletproof vest? They are quite expensive, but that's a ridiculous thing. That is a ridiculous you know, thing. Phil. I just there was a. I wish I had saved this video. There was a video in California where a perp was on the highway trying to flee the police, and he had a female accomplice was driving, and he's out the window banging it out with the police. And I was just like, this looks like the 1930s. Like you know. Uh, the old Elliot Ness movies with, you know, Al Capone and everything. Yeah. This guy's banging it out with the police on the Bonnie highway with a semi-automatic weapon. I'm like, wow. why is this? It's happening because the district attorneys in those jurisdictions refuse to prosecute these perps, you know? And he's there with And then finally the police had enough and they pulled up alongside him and they just 50 calibered him, you know? And, uh, yeah, yeah, but but how dangerous is that? There's no deterrence in in the society we live in today. Joe, did you see the video from outside of the 81st precinct from a few days ago, where no. they, they there's a video camera from the parking lot of the precinct, and a few guys are outside. And all of a sudden, they whip out guns and they're leaning on patrol cars, shooting it out with one another. I mean, it's the wild west on the streets of Brooklyn. Unfortunately, in the eight, well, that, that's the New York version. We had the California version. You got the New York version. There's a couple of videos online where a guy in Brooklyn during the day just is banging it out on the street in the daytime. Yes, they're firing shots. Everybody's carrying, even though we have the toughest gun laws in the country in New York City, but yet everybody's carrying guns. They're whipping them out. And Hochul and the rest of the uh, politicians are worried about micro-encrypting bullets and taking away body armor. Yeah, well, what, that is so asinine. People need going shopping for uh, groceries, on, uh, you know, in, in a shopping district that they're pulling out guns and firing shots. Grandma needs a bulletproof vest. You know, this 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 comes down to that criminological, you know, philosophy of uh, selective incapacitation where, you know, I don't, I don't remember the exact numbers, but 80 percent of the crime is committed by 20 percent of the population. You take that 20 percent and remove them out of the population. 80 percent of the crime will go away. Yeah. That is a fact. That is an absolute fact. Well, you and know, Joe, there's another concept is and what happened with bail reform people are getting arrested they're getting arrested for gun charges and they're being put right back out into population where they used to be kept in and now they're committing more crimes and, and additional crimes and and they're still not sentencing them they're not giving them state time it's horrible but that's what we need to do we need to target these individuals who have demonstrated they don't want to live within the laws of our society now we need to remove them from society. And it, it works. It's worked all over the country. 
you know. Bill, doesn't it well, sound like he's describing what we went through in the 80s and 90s? Yes, and, and you know, there were the other the lower the guys and bringing the crime down. The yeah. lower level of that is something called specific and general deterrence. Right. And specific deterrence, basically, I'll make it very simple. If you do a, an armed robbery of a store and you get caught, you're going to do 5 to 15. That sends a message to the general deterrent guy. I'm not going to do a stick-up because this guy just they specifically tailored that sentence yeah. to someone with a gun that does a stick But then you got an, a district attorney that wanted to make robbery first degree in New York City a misdemeanor. A yeah. misdemeanor. I, I cringe. It's like it's time for me to get out of the state that I cannot believe anyone could say that that's okay. Yeah, but that you're you're exactly right because that totally deflates the whole possibility of deterrence when you don't have continuity and people see that oh that rule really doesn't apply it's not strictly enforced it's not deterring anyone so I, I agree with you hundred percent in order to have that deterrence you need to demonstrate you get caught with a gun minimum three and a half. You're a predicate felon, five years. You're a violent predicate felon, seven years. And we're going to remove these people from society. The heck with all these progressives that talk about, oh, they're not really criminals. They need to be held and hugged and, and coddled. And <laughs> you know, Joe, when I, was teaching, when I was teaching criminal justice, I used to every once in a while teach a course on corrections, which I hated. I hated because it, it glorified the prisoners like actually glorified them, this book. And it, one of the things it said, which I cringed at also was like, the definitions of career in the correctional field are all wrong. If someone commits three felonies in 10 years, that doesn't mean they're a career criminal. If you had three jobs in 10 years, does, is that a career? I was just like, I cannot believe this person that wrote this book just compared John Q. Citizen having three jobs in 10 years to what a career a of a criminal committing felonies as the same thing. I, and I was like, well, Bill, I couldn't it, even... misses, it misses the obvious factor. You're talking about they got caught and convicted three times within 10 years. Not that they only committed three crimes in 10 years. Right. You know, right. Joe. Big, difference. big difference. Big difference. Yeah. We used to say the 10 to one rule. For everyone that got caught for it, they did 10 that they got away with, right? They got away. Good yeah, they got That's away. Good, good percentages. But, Joe, I want to point out something that happened to me in one of the homicide cases I worked on. And it specifically goes to career criminals. I locked up a guy for a homicide. And during the time when we were interrogating him, he was found with the – he got shot too. He was found with the holster and he had bullets in his pocket. He had dumped a gun. But when I tried to talk to him, he said, listen, man, he goes, I'm a predicate felon. I can't give you a statement because I'll be facing 15 years just on the gun alone. So right there, that's telling you. That's the deterrence of you know having it's predicate felon. It's yes. in his head. Damn, yeah. if I get caught. I'm facing 15 as a minimum, 15 exactly. to life probably. Exactly. You know? He was a predicate felon. And all those predicate statues are gone now. He was a predicate felon at the time. He knew he was walking around carrying a gun. He gets into a beef, winds up shooting it out with a guy, and the guy gets killed and blah, blah, blah. But he knew he couldn't talk to the police because of his predicate felon status. First thing he said to me, when he, you know, I want to try and talk to him. No good. No, no statement yeah. out of him yeah. because he knew. And he wound up going to jail. He, he went to jail for, for whatever period of time, a long period of time. But the bottom line is, is that that deterrence was right there in his mind, right yeah. up front. Exactly. 100%. You know, folks, I want to thank everyone for coming by tonight. And, um, there's a lot of emotion to this case, obviously, and we're not immune to that emotion either. And I see the venom and the, the anger coming out of the chat from a lot of you. And I don't disagree with you. I don't disagree with you. I think there was many things done uh, incorrectly in this case. And we're not here to protect or defend or whatever. We're here to shine a light on it and to, to hopefully report on this so that maybe this won't, well, we're not, we're not going to prevent it from ever happening again, but pointing out some of the things that went wrong here. Um, Joe, you got any last words? Yeah, I just, you know, want to say to people, you know, just just think about what what really happened here. Uh, you know, people assume you know who the bad guy is. He's got a sign on him, bad guy, you know, and, and when you're entering a scene like that and you're hearing voices, people yelling directions, you don't know who anyone is. 
So, it, you know, just to assume and say they were cowards, they were afraid, they were this, they were that, I, I think it's unfair, it's unnecessary. And if you were in a situation like that, you would see how real it is. And you don't know where the threat is. You don't know where, you know, uh, who the enemy is, who the good guys are. Uh, so it's a very difficult, chaotic situation. Certainly there were a lot of failures and breakdowns that uh, need to be addressed. But uh, I, I hope people will refrain from the constant attack of the police. Uh, the police have taken a beating over the years, and, and they still go out there and put that shield and, and gun on and, and do their job. So uh, I, I just ask for people to just take a second to pause and think about, you know what I, I usually do is I try to slow things down. Take it step by step. Don't automatically assume all oh, the shooters here. Think about when you're approaching this and the first person to come down the hallway, you know, who may be a teacher, what's your reaction going to be? You're just going to blast them? I mean, it, you got to slow things down and try to work it through logically, you know? So that would be my advice to people. Andy to Gabby Cabby, thank you for the five pounds, brother. Good to see <laughs> you. Um, <laughs> Five pounds. That's funny, right? But uh, thank you anyway. Thank you for the five pounds. Uh, Phil, uh, last words. words. I just want to mention over the weekend in L.A. County, the El Monte Police Department, two hero police officers were killed last week. Corporal Michael Paradis, 22-year veteran, left a wife, two, uh, two children, a daughter, and a son. And Officer Joseph Santana, who was a rookie police officer with less than a year in a job, uh, left a wife, uh, three kids, a daughter, and twin sons. Um just a horrible situation. They were uh, responding to a domestic violence call at a hotel. They were met with gunfire. Uh, they lost their lives. I believe the perpetrator was killed as well, but uh, unfortunately uh, they lost their lives and their families and uh, God bless them. And uh, God bless their families. Just thought it was worth mentioning. There was a memorial over the weekend for them. Absolutely. Folks. Thanks for tuning in. This is police off the cuff, real crime stories. Have a great night and stay safe. Stay safe, everyone. Good night. So just ain't enough